From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. Uh, in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. I'm back, baby. It's the Vine Pair Podcast, Friday edition. Woo! Wow, it just feels so fucking good to be back and to say fuck <laughs> on uh, the podcast. No, I'm also bummed that I'm not home, but let's be real. It's, it's, it's nice to have uh, a good work-life balance. We'll talk more on, on our Monday episode, Zach, about how I'm doing. But I, but I would I do want to say like I'm sure there are probably some listeners out there that are missing the Scott. Uh, probably thought his accent's much better than mine. But you're not going to replace me. I just want you to know you're not going <laughs> to replace me. Uh, okay. I did found We're the company. Veer so. ter- quickly into dangerous territory if you repeat that phrase too much. But... <laughs> <laughs> totally. But also thank you to all the, the people, all the listeners who reached out with congratulations. It meant a lot. I really appreciate it. Um, and. Yeah, Zach, man, I it just it felt like a piece of me was missing not talking to <laughs> to you uh, you know, twice a week. Yeah. You know, uh, there you guys you guys had some good podcasts while I was gone. Some good topics were were uh were gotten into, which I uh, which I, I I appreciate. You know, you guys kept it spicy, kept it interesting. Yep, a little bit. Hopefully we didn't lose any listeners. Hopefully we gained some <laughs> listeners. Yeah. But I think this episode today is uh it's going to definitely have some strong opinions and probably some reactions. So before we even get into the topic, just to remind our lovely folks listening along at home, uh, podcast at vinepair.com. would love to hear your thoughts. We're going to talk today about Camus. Uh, so this is actually an article that we've been shopping around for like the last six months, talking about internally and, uh, you know, had an amazing writer who uh, published this for us uh, earlier this week. So uh, we, we wrote a whole feature um, on sort of the polarization of Camus. Uh, and for those listening to this podcast who may or may not, who may not be aware of what Camus is, which is uh, kind of insane, uh, you should read the amazing article by Clay Dillow, who is the writer of this Um Spicy headline, it's time to talk about Camus, America's most loved and loathed fine wine. You know, I will admit at the beginning of this episode, I have actually never had Camus before. For me, coming into wine, it was always a wine that was sort of talked about as a polarized wine. And then the price tag for me was one where it was like, well, if some people love it and some people don't, I don't know if... I am willing to shell out for the wine. Spoiler alert, we are going to drink it at the end of the episode. Yeah. But I guess, Zach, just you know, from the beginning, as someone in the industry, when you hear someone talk about Camus, what is your initial reaction? Okay, so I would say this. I think two things. One is I feel like my relationship to Camus has changed a lot over the time I've been a wine professional. I think there was an early stage where it was, you know, kind of part of this class of Napa Cabernet Sauvignons that I just, I didn't have the means to afford on my own for the most part. Yeah. And even if stylistically they might have appealed to me at that point in my life, I just, it wasn't something I, I could afford. So it was something that maybe I had some passing familiarity with because it was popular, but I also was, you know, just not uh, exposed to it very much. And then went through the phase of like all of these very popular very highly regarded highly pointed Mm -hmm. wines are bullshit like why does anyone drink these they're just you know overpriced over sensationalized wines for people who don't are not willing to try something new Mm -hmm. and i want to be clear 
there's still a part of me that does feel that. I think the last thing, though, and the more the place I feel like I'm at with a wine like Camus, and maybe even specifically with Camus now, is a recognition that it does two things. One is it meets a very obvious consumer yeah. demand, and that's always there's always going to be wine in its ilk that does that. And Camus has been in a lot of ways at the top of this particular heap for quite a while, but there are other wines in its general sort of the. Uh, classification i guess you'd almost put it at different price points the prison there are one. yeah there are wines that are less expensive that do a lot of what camus does and quite honestly there are wines that are more expensive that do what camus does up to something like screaming eagle which we've talked about on the podcast before is like the incredibly expensive version of this kind of wine in a mm-hmm. lot of ways and to say as a wine professional like oh all of these wines are like beneath me or I shouldn't even think about them is I think a just ignoring where a lot of the wine drinking public is at although as we'll get into maybe not where it's going and also is just like it's a kind of snobbery that I don't really want to participate in anymore so I think Camus is a fascinating topic to talk about because it's both as the headline points out as Clay's piece points out loved and loathed in equal measure yeah I think what's so amazing about this topic is how hard it was for Clay to write this piece, um, how long it took him, because so few wine professionals were unwilling to talk about Camus on the record. And I don't think we have ever tried to do a piece before where this many people, I mean, he talked to, I think, over 50, 60 wine professionals. So many people are just like, uh, I don't want to go there. And whether it's because they have Camus on their list, but they don't want, so they don't want to say they don't like Camus because they, you know, don't want to upset Camus because they need Camus because Camus actually sells, or because they like Camus, but they don't want that to, you know, be heard by their like cool kid friends in the industry. Like it's such an interesting wine. And I think what it does better than any wine currently on the market is it perfectly shows this massive separation between industry people or like wine geeks let's say and just like people who like expensive wine those are very two different camps and like i was having a lot of fun going in and reading the reddit thread about this uh and like you were seeing that happen on reddit wine and like again reddit wine plays a huge uh character in the story because it is a you know a subreddit that loves to hate Camus, but there were people defending Camus in the subreddit as well, and kind of saying a lot of the criticism that Camus gets is kind of bullshit, right? Like lots of pub- lots of wineries use Mega Purple, even wineries that a lot of these people might say they like, like lots of wineries add things to try to soften the vintage or help things out when things aren't going well. You know, lots of people may or may not be jealous of the success of this wine. You know, this this is a wine that has basically done incredible things for the family that owns it, allowed them to open multiple other wineries. Right? The Wagner family is very, very wealthy because of this wine, um, you know, and now they have lots of other brands because of this wine. So, you know, there could be a jealousy factor there. I mean, in the same that you sort of hear when people go after the prisoner of like, oh, you know, it's a it's crap. Well, yeah, but also someone figured out how to do it and you didn't. Right. So I think. It's it's really interesting because what Camus represents for me is a kind of wine that the majority of 
wine professionals refuse to admit is popular. I also want to say this. Refuse to admit tastes good. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it, too. It's Because I don't think people deny its popularity. I think they deny that it tastes good. And that, I think, is a fundamental part of this tension. And I think what's really interesting here is this kind of liquid exists in every other world of alcohol as well. Like, yeah. there is – like, so let's take agave as the perfect example because it's on fire right now. And I think that there's a really good, um, you know – parallel here. So if you talk to, you know, most agave heads, first of all, they don't even drink tequila anymore because it's not legitimate enough. They're only drinking mezcal. (laughs) But if they're not drinking mezcal and they're still willing to drink tequila, they're only drinking like the pure vegetal, very like small production tequilas. And they're really wary of brands. And the one brand they fucking hate is Casamigos, which is everyone admits is probably manipulated and has additives up to the legal amount, just like Camus, right? If it even has additives, right? Because we don't know, but we all are assuming for both. And the American public loves. And Casamigos is the tequila brand right now that is on fire. Like I was just looking at Diageo's like most recent earnings and like it's growing faster than any other tequila they have in their portfolio, even Don Julio. Like it is massive for this for, for Diageo right now. And all these other big brand tequilas are like are doing well, but not growing at the at the rate of Casamigos. And you talk to like any big agave nerd and they'll tell you that Casamigos isn't tequila. And I think that's where we and and they will not admit that. Yeah, but like in some versions like Casamigos does taste good like in certain margaritas with like that vanilla profile Casamigos can be a very like make a very rich very decadent margarita it does and I think to your point like to a lot of consumers Camus not only tastes really good it tastes the way an expensive wine they think is supposed to taste and this is this challenge that we we've talked about for so many years now with wine that the wine world especially like the world of like you know i would say city-based psalms refuse to sort of accept which is like most consumers don't want to fight with the thing that's expensive like when you order a really expensive um steak like if you order like a bone-in ribeye or a tomahawk like it's rich and fatty and tastes rich and fatty, which tastes expensive. Foie gras tastes rich and fatty and expensive. Like, th- th- these are the things, this is what they're bringing to the world of a beverage, is this idea that, like, the more opulent it tastes, the, m- the more it must be equal to the value, right? So they're not used to wines that are, like, high in acidity and, like, sort of vegetal or really aggressive in tannins, right? Like that's why I think sometimes when you find consumers who ultimately try like, I don't know, a Barolo and, and fall in love, it's, it's usually a Barolo that has a good bit of age on it because everything is softened. You know, Camus is, I mean, that's the other thing too, like we haven't even talked about yet because there's so much to talk about here, but like Camus is good out of the fucking bottle for most yeah. people. It doesn't need to be decanted. It's consistent every year. And that I think is, all of that is so interesting to me. I want to add a couple things here that I think are really relevant and that sort of touch on what you were mentioning there, Adam. One of them is that I think that the wine kind of geek realm, you know, whether it's producers, 
psalms, writers, and other journalists in some cases tend to spend a lot of time and energy and emotion thinking about wine as a struggle, right? About how hard it is to grow the grapes, how hard it is to make the wine, and in some cases, kind of how complex and challenging the wines themselves are. And I don't mean to say that any one of those things is untrue. I think in a lot of cases they are. But I think it's important to remember that for people outside of that world, wine is not an intellectual pursuit for many of them. Wine is not is not their livelihood. Wine is their release. Wine is their treat. And wines that meet those needs, again, throughout flavor profiles, price points, etc., tend to do really well yep. because it conforms to what people want the wine that they drink to do, to offer them something in this case of Camus and others, you know, lushness, decadence, opulence, luxury, things that people can connect to and say like, ah, yes, here is the bottle that I have paid upwards of 80 or a hundred dollars for in a store, several hundred dollars for on a wine list in many cases. Mm -hmm. And it meets the mark. It's not a wine that's going to force me. It's not going to challenge me. And in saying that, I find a part of me being like, well, but then what's the point of spending money on wine in a sense? But but I think that, again, this is where you and I and others have to check our own, you know, kind of our own experience, our own relation to wine and to, and to alcohol and, and realize that, like, the public is telling us something with the popularity of these wines. And it's not just what some people cynically would say, which is like, oh, well, people don't know what good stuff is. They've only ever had, you know grocery store wine so so this is a is a more expensive version of that so of course it appeals to them and again is there some truth to that perhaps but again i think it's also like it's important that camus in particular is a wine that's also in others are very closely associated with napa and again what mm -hmm. is napa selling about itself it's selling easy living mm -hmm. luxury sunshine gentleness and camus's wines encapsulate that it's not a surprise that like what chuck wagner and, and his family you know, one of they were one of the early kind of producers to be like, let's just let our grapes hang on the vine for a really long time. Let's let them continue to soak up that October sunshine in Napa. Let's let them get really ripe, develop the tannins really fully, and, and make them really kind of soft and gentle. And we're gonna we're gonna present this wine that is a a sort of distilled form of what people envision Napa Valley to be like. And again, for people who've never been there. A bottle of Camus is an excellent way to get there. Mm -hmm. I I think that that is absolutely true. I think, you know, the biggest thing that I would argue most people are guilty of in this sort of loved and loathed world of Camus is most people who have a very strong opinion against it have either tasted it and as you said, Zach, are unwilling to at least discuss its why people like it, accept why people like it, understand why people like it, or they never tasted it. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that's – there's very few wines out there now like that, especially at this price point. And, like, what has been so fascinating to us about Camus for so long is when I – when we go to like wine festivals where, you know, we sponsor like Charleston Food and Wine or uh, we did the New York Food and Wine Festival here as, as a media sponsor, et cetera, and we do like master classes and we get people who show up to wine classes and they're paying $150, $250 for these like wine classes, these festivals. The 
the wine that people ask us about more than any other wine is Camus. Yep. I love Camus. Like what other wines are like Camus? And these are, again, these are people who love wine. And this is, this is where I think the industry is having a problem. And again, you know, I can't believe I'm coming back after being out for a few weeks and we're like back to this, like why, you know, <laughs> why, why wine is, is hurting discussion. But is that like, this is, these are people who, Say they love wine. And when people tell you that they love something, you need to believe them, right? So they say they love wine and they love this wine. And you as a professional tell them that this isn't a wine worth loving. So what is that going to do to the, to their impression of like the the wine industry? Yeah. Right? And I think that it's it's a huge it's a huge issue that keeps coming up. I saw on Reddit, like someone someone said to this that like Camus is the Johnny Walker Blue of wine, but you know how many people love Johnny Walker Blue and who th- and who think that like a bottle of Johnny Walker Blue is like the ultimate like super special occasion gift. Like someone gets married and it's like the present you give to that person like the night before the wedding to like everyone cheers with Johnny Walker Blue. It's like it it means a lot to a lot of people. And again, like. That has opened up so many people and turned them into whiskey drinkers. So many and expensive whiskey drinkers, you know, and you again, you just don't hear the same amount of hatred in the world of spirits from spirits professionals. You just don't because, again, they understand what the sales of a, a glass of Johnny Walker Blue does for their bottom line. And I think that's why you saw so many people who were unwilling to sort of talk about Camus. Because yep. deep down, everyone, you know, admits like th- this. This is the fine wine that sells. This is yeah. the fine wine that like they can move. And there's lots of lists when we were doing research. You know, they're selling this for four or five x markup, and people are still paying it. Yep. You know, it's really funny. You know, you say that, and it reminds me of an interaction I had with a wine director at a place I worked a number of years ago, and just sort of was like. I wasn't trying to be too much of the person that I discussed earlier, but like, I was kind of like, you know, why, you know, why do we have Camus on the list? Kind of like, it it wasn't totally incongruent with the rest of the selections, but it was probably the largest production wine on our list. And they showed me an invoice for what they paid for Camus <laughs> and then pointed to the price on the list. And I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. And it's like, there is a, a thing of like, I don't have any problem with any given wine list or any restaurant that says, you know, we're just, it's not what we want to carry. Fine. But then, yeah, you need to be prepared to meet the people who come in and say, like, when they say, like, oh, you know, I'm looking for a bottle of Cabernet, and you ask what do they usually drink, and they say Camus, that response has to come with a degree of sort of respect towards their drinking choice, Mm -hmm. not a, like, ugh, really, you drink Camus? Like, get out of here. Like, ugh, I guess I'll find you, you know, whatever I've you know, kind of lowered myself to carry that's similar or whatever. Because I think that's that's the thing that I find really frustrating about the conversation around this, which is, you know, the sort of denigration of this wine and the, and in particular the people who drink it, who love it, who are, are big fans of it. And yes, are some of those people perhaps uncurious about the rest of the world of wine? Are they happy to just sort of drink the same wine over and over again? And again, to be clear, part of what's made Camus so successful is that they do deliver the same wine year in and year out. And however they achieve that effect you know, some other producers may not choose to go that, that route, whether it's viticulture or, or winemaking or both, but that's fine. I think there's a lot of value to a lot of consumers in predictability and in, as you said, Adam, the ability for the wine to be what you expect it to be the moment you pull the cork 
importing your glass. You don't have to lay it down for a decade. You don't have to decant it for two hours before you drink it. It is there ready to roll to give you that sort of like, you know, again, that kind of Napa in a bottle experience. And if you can't connect with people who, as you said, Adam, you know, gave all these examples of people who come up and are like, I love wine. Here's what I love most. But I also know that I maybe do want to try some other stuff. And if you can't kind of come to that person and be like, all right, great. Like even, you know, kind of whoever you are in the world of wine, that person has gotten over one big hurdle, which is like, well, two big hurdles. One, they like wine. And two, they're willing to spend a lot of money on their wine. Like these are not people who are like, there's one thing to be resistant to someone who says their favorite wine is a $10 grocery store bottle because perhaps you as a proprietor of a higher end wine shop or, uh, you know, someone who has an extensive wine list is going to look at that person and be like, are you really going to spend money on wine? Mm-hmm. Are you really worth my time? Like the person who's drinking a lot of chemists is probably spending a lot of money on wine. And so if nothing else from a, again, kind of coldly economic perspective, it behooves you to be accommodating to those people mm-hmm. because they're people who will help support your restaurant or wine shop or whatever. Well, I think, so I think what's really interesting too about Camus and uh, to piggyback on, on, on one of your points quickly first, like I do think one of the things that I, we're both saying, I'm, I'm not sitting here arguing. And I don't think you are either that like people in wine who love high acid and uh, more biodynamic viticulture practices, more, you know, natural fermentation, it's all that kind of stuff have to love Camus. I'm just saying if you're someone who's in the wine world and and you want to be someone who, you know, helps bring new people into wine, like if you just want to sit in your little corner and like be angry, that's fine. I also don't you don't I don't need to fuck with you. You know what I mean? Like and you don't need to fuck with Vine Pair. Like if, if that's who you are and you just want to be bitter and angry and think that only, you know, wine made in concrete eggs from obscure grapes that no one's ever heard of before is real wine cool man like i'm sure there's a zine you can read but i think if you want to understand what excites people about wine and help them then find the wines you're excited about you at least need to understand camus and be able to appreciate it for what it is and not just say well it fucking sucks and it's made with mega purple and like it should fuck off because i think that that's that's where the issue is and that's why we wanted to talk about it so so badly i mean but also i think the thing that camus does so well that it comes across in the article and then I was uh, sort of reintroduced to by purchasing it is like it is both because and this just this is the mind bogglingness of Napa, right? It is both expensive and affordable for Napa. This this wine was one hundred and eight dollars that I, yeah. I just bought it across the street at the at a wine shop here in um, in the nomad neighborhood. It was one hundred and eight on one hundred and eight on the shelf. I don't know. What did you pay for it in Seattle? Uh, well. Uh, the shelf price was, uh, I think, $74. Okay, that's better. Yeah, yeah. Thank <laughs> shout, shout out to Total Wine. Yeah. Oh, you got it at Total. Yeah, we don't have any Total here. Yeah. But still, okay, that's expensive wine. But, like, wines that have this much of a cult following in Napa are much more expensive than this. Usually, yes. You know? Like, I think, like, another wine that's, I guess, more, I guess you would say is old school, right? Like, uh, what is it? Um, BV's... Schaefer or like even the BV Latour, George George Latour or whatever, like those are all two fifty, three hundred bottle dollar bottles of wine. And Camus is, you know, in New York, which is probably the most expensive market for it, a hundred bucks. Yeah. Like that again is this brilliant thing. And it's again because of probably how much they um produce. 
But mm-hmm. these are wines. There are wines out there that are these really expensive fine wines that I do think the industry has to understand whether or not you want to like them. Another, another wine that actually I think about a lot on the white side is Rombauer. Yeah. Like you can hate Rombauer all you want. You can think it's like a crazy over oaked liquefied butter in a glass wine, but they can't keep it in stock. And they had one of the largest vineyard purchases in the last few years because they can't produce enough. Yeah. So clearly it's possible. It's popular. And it's at least important to have tried it and then be able to, like, know why there are a group of people that are willing to spend Rombauer Chardonnay. Again, not cheap. Yeah. And I think the last thing, and then we should try this, is... Oh, I can't wait. It's not only it's not only that the wines are popular. It's been my experience every time I've tasted these things. And I've had, I've tasted Camus a number of times before, to be clear. I am not uh, the neophyte that Adam is. You're not this. me. Not, not in so many ways. Um, but I do think that there's an important note, which is that almost across the board when i try wines like this that are so controversial at least i'm always struck by like how when i taste them I'm like this wine to me is way less controversial than all of the the stuff swirling around it like we'll see how you feel about it and we'll see it's been a couple years since i've had camus so i may feel differently now but i do think that it's always one of those things where like all these things get greatly blown out of proportion that like the things about it that people find objectionable are rarely as evident in the glass, at least, as the way they're talked about. Well, so let's pour it. But as we pour, I want to talk about something. So if you look at the bottle, right, it says it's Cabernet Sauvignon, Napa Valley. Now, again, we know that Napa rules and regulations is I think it's 70% has to be Cabernet. So there could be something else in here. Who knows? I'm sure there is. But I think what also is really interesting about Camus, which I just noticed when I turned my bottle on. So, I mean, again, one of the things about it is its consistency. So, you know, I have the... 2020 vintage um okay is zach at least the alcohol level they are listing on the back of the bottle Mm -hmm. i'm pretty shocked is as low as it is it's 14.4 now i know that you can go within what is it a percentage up or down but 1.5 percent legally but still you know for lots of Napa cab especially among this same what what the biases of more of our like wine insider like cool kid psalm club would say is that high alcohol is what that consumer wants so you would yeah. think if this did have high alcohol in it camus would be telling you it's 15.5 because that's what they think that that consumer wants but it's 14.4 well i think it speaks to a tension there which is People like the way that higher alcohol wines taste and make them feel, but they don't necessarily want it in their face that they're drinking a high alcohol wine. So, look, I will say on the nose for me, the immediate thing it reminds me of is Manischewitz. <laughs> Interesting. It does. I, I, I mean, maybe it's because it was Passover recently. And, I was going to say, were you just drinking yeah, some But it does remind me of Manischewitz. So, so I guess what I mean by that for those who have not had Manischewitz is Manischewitz is a clearly sh- you know, sweetened uh, Concord grape red wine that is kosher that people only drink when they have to, uh, unless you're religious. Um, but for me, it's an ingredient in uh, Harosets, which is part of the yeah, Passover meal. Um, but yeah, it, it does smell like Manischewitz to me. So, which so makes me believe there's, I mean, so you know there's sugar in it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's the the ripeness of the grapes is a is a fundamental piece. Cool. I want to say one thing before we get into the taste, real quick though, about the bottle too, because I think it's important to note. Yeah, please. I think another reason that Camus has remained kind of popular is even though the Wagner family has become incredibly successful, it is still a family owned winery. In a way that, like something like the Prisoner, which was started by Dave Finney and then sold right. off to Constellation, but, you know, the, the the person who created it, the sort of name that was attached to it, has not been involved in many years. Whereas, like, it is still the Wagner family who runs this winery, and you can see it on. I mean, the label has not changed in a long time. The back of the label has you know family photos. This it talks a lot about the family. You know, it, it doesn't have much in the way of tasting notes. Like, it's very like, you know, for someone who finds a certain appeal in that. I think it does feel different than some of the other either sort of larger scale production Napa wines that maybe don't have that same, even if, even again, the veneer of family is a little weird because they're making 200,000 cases of this, but like it has that aesthetic to it that I do think resonates with some people. Well, I think too, like the other thing now that we're like really dissecting its look, which is important is it's like in a shiner bottle. Mm-hmm. So it has kind of like a working class, like, you know, salt of the earth simplicity to it, right? It's not in a huge, ostentatious Bordeaux bottle. It's not massively heavy. It doesn't have, like, the deepest punch you've ever seen in your life, like a lot of Napa's, you know. It, the bottle is clear, which is yeah. also interesting. Um, well, or like a, a, a light green tint, right? But it's not yeah. super dark. Like they're letting you see how inky the wine is. All these things I think are really interesting and clearly intentional choices. Or maybe they weren't in the beginning, right? And this is what they had. And now, but it it makes the wine also very unique. And so yeah, it's it's a very distinctive bottle yes. in its set. And that's I think another reason why it succeeds. Okay, I have also nosed the glass, but I'm going to taste because that, that's really what we're here to do. I mean, look, there's almost no tannin. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of acidity, but not a ton. Just enough. It is very fruity. Like, yep. extremely fruit forward. And extremely easy to drink. Almost like yeah. light in body in a weird way. I, it's funny you said that. Yes, I was thinking something along those lines. Like, if, if you chilled this, someone would be like, oh, this so, this might taste like some of like those Napa Pinot Noirs. You know what I mean? That like maybe don't have yeah. just Pinot in them. Like... All of it kind of does really well, which mean, which again, this is a, a wine that's like we've talked about this a bunch too. That I think a lot of sorry, wine professionals don't want to admit is like a lot of consumers with money who like wine. Like watch any any TV show, any of the popular TV shows where the where the the character the main character is really into wine. They're sitting around after work having a glass of wine, holding it by the bulb. Yeah, and this is a wine that performs well there. Like you don't need food with this wine. No. You, you you absolutely don't. Now, do people think that it probably does really well with steak? Yeah, that's why it's like one of the top sellers at every single major steakhouse chain in the country. I think it probably is the top seller at every yeah, major right. steakhouse chain in the country, which is why so many beverage of major steakhouse chains refuse to talk to us. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think, you know, again, that is because it does well in both settings. The wine yeah. is just like... I'd be really interested. I'm going to bring this upstairs uh, and leave it on the bar for the staff because I think there's a lot of members of the staff who've never had it before. I'm curious what a lot of people think about it because I think we're going to have people on staff that love it who are like, yeah. wow, especially like people who, you know, maybe maybe some of our spirits writers, et cetera, who are like, wow, this is really good because it's it's built and it, yeah. it's it's designed in a way that makes it very easy to appreciate. Exactly. And I think 
here's a here's the last point of distinction that I'll make. I think it is fair to criticize Camus wines as perhaps not the most complex or challenging wines on the market. Now, again, as I said before, unclear who decided that those were the single single most important characteristics for a wine to possess and also why that should matter to every wine drinker. I don't think either of those things are inherently true, but I don't I would I don't think you can taste this wine and be like this is bad wine. It might not be the kind of wine that any given wine drinker or wine professional might choose to drink on their own, especially when coupled with the price point, which as we said for the category is maybe not that high, but for wine as a collective unit is quite high. But like, this is a very, it it does exactly what it should do given everything we've said about it. And that's why it's so fucking popular because a lot of wine, frankly, disappoints for the price, especially expensive Napa wine. And Camus is less expensive than most of those. And I think at a minimum, does not disappoint. And like we said, it's ready to go right out the chute. Like, it does what it set out sets out to do. And I think that's, in a way, kind of admirable. I mean, I think what's also interesting this, to the about this for me, I mean, now I'm like coming as a noob who's never tried it before, Zach, I'm not getting that, like, massive amount of, like, new French oak you get with some of these Napa wines. Like, it's a yep. lot more fruit. And yes. it actually, which is interesting, because I think, that's another, you know, ding that a lot of Napa wines get is how much, especially the, the high-end ones, is how much oak is used. It's really not there here in the same way. It's there. It's definitely there. But it's not there as aggressively as other Napa wines at the same price point or higher. Yeah, it's really about the grape ripeness. It that, really is. It's about the grape deli- Driving the flavor here. It's so interesting. I mean, and again, you're right. It's it's just this thing that if you pop this and it's 100 bucks. You, this is why people need to try this wine because you need to then say, if I were not in my, on the wine journey that I'm currently on and I hadn't learned to appreciate because just like anything, right? We learn to appreciate fine art. We learn to appreciate, and you know, the kind of fine art we appreciate is different for everybody. But like, I've learned to appreciate styles of Barolo, you know, uh, Bierzo, things like that, right? But if you can sit here and just drink it and say, hmm, I can appreciate that this why this tastes expensive to most people or at least tastes equal to the money I paid, I think then you get it. And for me, tasting this, that's that's what I'm able to do, right, is I can taste this and say, yep, if I gave this to someone and they knew it was $100 and they opened it and they poured it in their glass, they would 100% say, this is what a 100 point, I, I get that this was $100. And I think that is a huge achievement, whether or not we want to, whether or not Camus will ever be a wine that is in my cellar, which for me, probably not. Well, it won't be, but for other people, it can be. And that's fine. That's good. Again, I I don't mean to say either to say that like people can't have, you know, real potential objections to things about this wine, the way they make it, the way they grow the grapes or the way the Wagner family has conducted business at times. But I think that, you know, those are those are criticisms that are fair and, you know, can be raised. I also think that some of them can be, you know, Camus, as the piece points out, is a lightning rod. It draws a lot of criticism that could fairly be leveled at a lot of other wines and a lot of other producers in in Napa and around the world. And again, when you're this successful, that's part of what comes with it, right? You're going you're gonna to take the flack because you're the biggest target. But I do think that just from the standpoint of, Understanding why it's so popular, understanding why the wine drinking public as a whole loves Camus, 
it is critical for wine professionals to do that and to treat those people not like you know rubes who've been suckered by the wine like they're they're not that yeah they're not so hit us up podcast at vinepair.com let us know what you think have you had it before what are your opinions do you want to go on the record and yeah zach i'll talk to you monday sounds great thanks so much for listening to the vine pair podcast the flagship podcast of the vine pair podcast network if you love listening to this show or even if you don't but I really hope that you do as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.